people. And when Megan and I were engaged, we actually had a secret Zanga account. And Zanga was like pre-MySpace. And so if you didn't have a Zanga in 2004, you just weren't that cool. And Zanga was this blogging website that you could have and you could write back and forth to other people and then they could post on the website and you kind of go back and forth. And so Megan and I used this because we actually lived a hundred miles apart during our engagement. We didn't live in the same town until we got married. And so we would post these posts back and forth to each other. And a lot of it was kind of sappy, lovey-dovey stuff of, you know, I love you and I can't wait to be married. I'm so excited about what God is doing in your life. Uh, I, I'm so glad that he's, he's made you who you are and you're so, so loving and caring and I'm just praying for you. And she would write back, you're so handsome and talented and uh, you're so, you know, you, you have all these gifts and, and, and you know, it'd be kind of like you'd write and a couple days later she'd write back and it was this really intimate way for us to communicate to one another by writing a letter and having them read that letter, telling her I cared for her, I prayed for her. That's a little bit of what's going on in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul's writing to a group of people he deeply cares about, who live about a thousand miles away. And so just to give you a bit of historical context on the book of Colossians, Paul is in a Roman prison, which is about a thousand miles away from Colossae. That's where the Colossians are from. Now, Paul probably had never been there. He'd never been to this area, this town, but Paul had a thriving ministry in Ephesus before he was imprisoned. And Ephesus and Colossae, they're about 100 miles apart. And so we're going to meet a guy named Epaphras today. And most likely what happened is Epaphras came from Colossae. He came over to Ephesus. He heard the gospel preached. Then he took that gospel back home and we have the Colossian church being born. And so sometime later now, Paul's in prison. He's a thousand miles away from this church he's never been to. But these are people he deeply loves. And he hears that there's a heresy influencing this church. And, and we don't really know what this heresy was. Uh, we, we have some ideas, which we'll kind of unpack as we kind of work through this book. But it was most likely a mix of heresies, a heresy cocktail, a heresy Long Island iced tea. But the idea is, is Paul knows that, that this church who he loves is now facing this new challenge. And so he writes this letter to them. And we see Paul do kind of two things in this introductory letter. Or we see two things about Paul. First, we see Paul beginning to confront this heresy. But we also see Paul's heart for this church. Now, what we're going to look at today is an introductory greeting, which is pretty common in Paul's letters. And the temptation for us is to kind of skip over these kind of greetings and get to the real meat of the letter. And it's just a formal greeting. Paul always does this. But, but this greeting in the book of Colossians is so theologically rich. These first 14 verses are so theologically rich, it would be a disservice to us to just skim over it. So here, here's what I want to do today. I want to kind of work through this passage, verse by verse by verse. And at the end of our time today, I really want to ask, what is Paul's heart for this church? What is Paul's heart for this church, and what does that move him to? So turn to Colossians, the book of Colossians. Uh, I'm going to say this. I always say this. I'll never get sick of saying this. Please have God's word in front of you. 
I don't care if it's on a phone. I don't care if it's in a book. I, we, are, we are biting off a side of beef today. It's going to be some true spiritual meat, and you're going to get lost if you don't have God's Word in front of you. My young daughter, eight years old, Last week at our Easter sermon, she took notes for the 20, 25-minute sermon, and she was like, I couldn't have been more prouder for her. If she can take notes and follow along, you guys can take notes and follow along. And so look at Colossians 1. We're going to read through 1, 1 through 14, and then we're going to kind of start breaking it down. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was a leader in the church of Ephesus. They're writing this together. To the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace and truth. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love and the Spirit. Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanksgiving to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. Let's go back up to verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul sees these people, even though he's probably never met these people, as part of God's family. And he, and he kind of makes an interesting note here. He says, you have been faithful. Who are faithful? So this church, it, it really isn't on the brink of destruction. But heresy has began to influence uh, people in the church. But there is a lot to celebrate about what God is doing in this church. And that's really what we have in verses 3 through 8. Paul kind of highlighting all of the good things that God is doing. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So having heard about this church, Paul thanks God for what he is doing in this church. Well, what exactly is he doing? Look at verse 4. For we have heard of your faith, underline or highlight faith in Christ Jesus and, and the love, underline or highlight love, you have for all the saints. So they are rich in faith and they are loving one another well. So they are rich in faith. He praises them for their faith in Jesus Christ. They have trusted in Jesus as Savior. They, they believe Jesus is God's son. They believe that Jesus has paid the price for their sin. So they have a strong faith in Christ. But this faith isn't simply 
an intellectual faith. It moves them to love one another well. Paul commends them for their love for one another. They were probably serving each other, caring for each other, meeting needs, helping each other, praying for each other. And so the idea here is, is authentic faith, real faith, name brand true faith, will always move us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Luther said something like this. He said, actually, this is what he said. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Name brand, authentic faith will move us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Read 1 John if if you struggle with that idea. John talks about if you don't love your brother, you don't know me. And so true faith will lead us to love one another. There's a type of faith out there, an off-brand type of faith, that says something like this, you know, I love Christ, but I really don't like Christians. That's a sentiment that a lot of Christians will say, you know, I like Christ, I like what he teaches, but, but, but Christians are the real problem. Oh, what a genius statement uh, to make there. But that's an off-brand type of faith. That's not real authentic faith. It's an off-brand faith. It's like cereal that comes in a big bag instead of a box. It's, it's off-brand. Or like jeans that, you know, they say Levi on them, but they're like, you know, they're not really Levi. And, and they shrink into, you know, they go up to your calves when, when you're wearing them. It's off-brand, inauthentic, knock-off faith. Because authentic faith will lead us to love one another. So you have faith and love. And Paul says there's, there's a source, a foundation for faith and love. And he says it's hope. He says it's hope. Look at verses 4 and 5 together. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope, underline hope, reserved for you in heaven. So you have faith, you have hope, you have love. Paul is commending them for their faith, hope, and love. Paul talks about faith, hope, and love quite a bit. But here is the only time that Paul says that faith and love actually spring from hope. It's kind of a unique take on, on what is happening. And so what is he kind of doing here? And we often think of hope as like a subjective feeling of, of optimism or, uh, you know, we're hopeful for the future. It's like an emotion. Here he's referring to the thing hoped for. In Christ, an inheritance awaits his children in, in, in the life to come. We have a glorious future ahead of us, laid up in heaven. We are objectively believing those truths. That is our hope. And last week, I was trying to get this point across that that future is going to be better than anything we can imagine. And so I asked a lot of kids during our Easter service, like, you know, what's your favorite place to go or vacation to? And they were like, you know, the beach or uh, South Dakota or one said Elitch Gardens. And, you know, another said Pennsylvania. And it was really easy for me to say, heaven will be better than Pennsylvania. Heaven will be better than Elitch Gardens. Heaven will be better than the beach. Um, and it's this idea that that's, that's what waits for us. And when, whenever we really reflect on what, what awaits us, it really encourages my faith 
in the present exponentially. God, thank you so much what you have done for me, what you have freely given me through the death of your son. I didn't earn that which awaits me. It was accomplished through your sacrificial love. And then what will happen is I want to demonstrate that sacrificial love for other people. Here's another way to kind of understand this. The more I reflect on what is to come, the more I'll cherish what was done and love for me. And when I cherish what has been done and love for me, I want to reflect that love to others. Faith and love come from hope. But hope doesn't just manifest on its own. There's a source for hope as well. You see, Paul's kind of building. He says faith and love, and we have hope. But hope springs from something else. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard of this hope and the message of truth, the gospel. Underline message of truth, the gospel, that has come to you and it's bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf. And he has told us about your love in the Spirit. And so we know from Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, and Acts, that the gospel spread like wildfire all over the kind of known world, all over Asia. And the Colossians were kind of part of that. You had Epaphras. He took that fire. He brought it back home. And we see the church grow and grow and grow. And he calls this gospel what? The word of? The word of truth. Let's just point out a couple things here. The word of truth. We talk about truth a lot in our culture. We, but we use it in kind of a subjective way. We talk about it in a subjectively. Like your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. And even though those truths may contradict, if it works for you, that's great. That's your truth. So truth becomes something that's emotionally fed, and, and it's functional. As long as it works for you, as long as it works for me, that is our truth. But Paul looks at truth very differently. He says the ultimate truth, the true truth, is that of which was revealed by God in Scripture. It is the word of truth. It is the gospel. It is who God is. It is his salvation plan. What, he's, what has he revealed about himself his, his plan of redemption, what Jesus has done on the cross, who Jesus is, what it looks like to follow him and love him and, and run after him and share others with him, which is our purpose and our mission. Those things are true. And if, if, if anything comes up against that truth and it contradicts that truth, it is a lie. It is a lie. Now remember, this letter is addressing false teachings that are unreliable, misleading, and destructive when compared to the word of truth, the word of truth that this church was founded on. You see Paul kind of fighting the heresy already. There's another thing to note, and while Paul praises the faith and love of the Colossians that's rooted in hope, everything good happening at this church is the result of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Even though he praises their faith, he praises their love, he praises their hope, everything good that is happening in this church is a result of the gospel. Paul's not like, man, 
Those fancy programs are really working. He's not like, it's a good thing you have a charismatic preacher. You know, it's a good thing you got really rocking music and it's loud enough and your, 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 your worship pastor is hip like Clint. Clint, you're hip. <laughs> That's truth. It's like, it's a good thing you have a smoke machine and laser lights. It's like, not all those things are bad, except maybe a smoke machine. Smoke machines are kind of ridiculous. Like, like, there's a guy in the back who literally presses a button that says smoke, and he's like, smoke, Holy Spirit, now work. And it's like, did, did Jesus minister in a bog or a swamp or something that we need to recreate that? Or like, like the only place a, a, a smoke machine belongs is in a haunted house. It doesn't belong. Anyways, but we rely on those things. Here's why we rely on those things in all seriousness. It's because we don't believe the gospel is powerful enough to save and sanctify people. And so we feel like we got to dress it up and put a bow on it. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes it. Amen? The same man who wrote this book said that in Romans. So here's kind of the flow of what's, what's going on. Or this is kind of the summation of what everything Paul is saying in this, this first passage. Yes, he praises their faith, he praises their love, he praises their hope, but ultimately he's praising God for how the gospel has shaped their lives. He thanks God for their living faith that springs from hope that is ultimately rooted in the gospel. But Paul doesn't want their good start and genuine progress to lead to apathy or complacency. So he's just praised God. Now he's going to ask God to do something. Look at verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He's saying, because your faith is alive. That's why that and so is there. Because your faith is alive and well, and because false teaching has reared its ugly head, I now ask God to help you press on. I now ask God to help you continue forward. I now petition God. I plead with God to give you what you need to spiritually grow. And Paul wants them to understand the fullness of the gospel and God's plan of salvation. He wants them to fully understand that. That's what he means by be full, filled with the knowledge of God's will. That doesn't mean his will for your life that we're always trying to figure out. That means his plan of salvation. But then he also says spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit that helps us know what biblical truth is. It helps us know what right and wrong is so that we can choose to do the right thing or choose to believe the right thing. We can discern truth and anything that deviates from the gospel, but he doesn't end there. As we talked about in the first section, intellectual knowledge, wisdom, understanding, faith will always lead to a changed life. It'll always lead to action. Look at verse 10. So that you may walk in a manner 
worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I want you to be full of all this wisdom, knowledge, and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That is the goal of such knowledge. And Paul describes what the Christian life looks like, what, what walking in a manner worthy of him looks like. And I want you to underline three things in the next few verses. So in verse 10, underline bearing fruit, bearing fruit. In verse 11, underline may you be strengthened, which is really just being strengthened. In verse 12, underline giving thanks, giving thanks. Paul says these are, these are things that constitute walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So go back up to verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Paul prays for them to bear fruit and grow in the knowledge of God. Again, we see this idea of bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God tied closely together. And the question becomes is, what does it really mean to bear fruit? Now, often we think of you know, bearing fruit as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness, kindness gentleness, self-control. Um, and I think that's part of it. That's bearing fruit. But think about the context. Context, context, context. In context, bearing fruit probably means loving one another well. I want you to continue to love one another well and care for one another and serve one another. In the first section, bearing fruit was associated with the gospel. And so I do think there's this idea, not just loving people well here, but going out and sharing the love of Christ out there so gospel fruit may abound, so that we may see people saved. That's fruit. And so what I'm saying here is, yeah, I want you to be full of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. But I don't want it to end there. We're not, we're not here, and I want, I want you to listen. We are not here to create comfortable academics. We are here to see people, yes, understand who God is, to know who God is, to be filled with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But, but my desire as a pastor is to see that knowledge and understanding seep down into their hearts and even go further down into their feet and move them to love other people well in this church and beyond, to share the love of Christ so gospel fruit may abound outside these doors. But Paul knows that doing this, walking in this manner, won't be easy. In fact, it's impossible to do on our own. So he continues this prayer. He said, bearing fruit, now he says this in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. God, give them power to endure. Give them your power for patience, for joy. Those are not things we can muster up on our own. And, and I'm just gonna be honest with you. If you give up easy, if you're impatient, if you don't find joy in anything, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is going to be very, very difficult. It will be very, very difficult. And so he prays for those things. Look at verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. Why, why is giving thanks an important part of walking in a manner 
that's worthy of the Lord and pleasing to God. Well, humanity in general, we really struggle to be thankful. Like, I, I am not easily pleased. And it's very easy to get disgruntled. And part of that is, is just my flesh, you know. It's the old man rearing his ugly head. And it's just a struggle. Every one of us has that struggle to be thankful, to be grateful. And, and, but culture doesn't help. You know, advertisers, influencers, celebrities, they all say, you need to do this or not do this. You need to be like this or not be like this. You need to take this to find ultimate spiritual fulfillment. And that's most likely what the false teachers were, were proclaiming. Hey, I need you to do this and not do this. And if you don't do this and do this and jump through this hoop and, and you know, go through this and do this, then you will find ultimate spiritual fulfillment. And so you, you can tell why Paul is wanting them to be thankful because if we're ungrateful with what God has done for us, our eyes will easily wander to those heresies that promise fulfillment. We'll, we'll get dissatisfied with what God is doing and we'll start to be like, well, you, your, promise, your promises sound nice. We'll start to entertain what those false teachers are saying. And so it's important for us to continually to bring our eyes back to God, to remember what he has done for us. It's important for us to be thankful. It's important for us to be thankful. And, and the question is, thankful about what? Because, you know, we, we, you know I'm thank, we, what are you thankful for? We always say, you know, my kids, I got a roof over my head, a job. Well, the, you can lose your job. Uh, you, you know, you, you, your kids can act like knuckleheads, and, and, and it's really hard to be thankful. And so now am I supposed to be thankful and suffering? I mean, this is just getting really hard, uh, Pastor. And so what, what are we to be thankful for? And Paul tells us in this passage. He tells us in this passage. Look at verse 12 again. Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. We are kingdom heirs. With an inheritance, our future is bright. It does not end in tears. We will rest with God. We will be in His favor forever. But He has also rescued us from the domain of darkness, the power of darkness. We were slaves to our sin. We lived in this, this dominion, this kingdom that was dominated by, by strife and war and jealousy and frustration and anger and sin and death. That is the kingdom that we once lived in. But he pulled us out of that kingdom. We didn't earn our way out of that kingdom. He pulled us out of that kingdom and he put us in the kingdom of his son, a kingdom that's marked by peace, joy, love, forgiveness, redemption. Redemption is this idea that we have been bought back. We are slaves no more. Our chains have been gone, and we have a new master. And so to, to pull ourselves away from ungratefulness, to, to shift our eyes back to God, it's important that we put these things before us and give thanks. Be filled with the knowledge of God and live in a way that pleases him. Bear fruit, be strengthened, be thankful. In the first section, 
Paul praises God for how the gospel has shaped their lives. In the second section, Paul petitions God to help them spiritually persevere, to spiritually grow, to spiritually press on. In these first 14 verses, you can tell by the way Paul writes that he loves these people. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. Blood may be thicker than water, but the gospel bond that we share is thickest. And you know how you can tell that you love somebody? Is whether or not you pray for them. You know you really love somebody when you pray for them, whether it be a friend, spouse, kid, person at work. You can tell you love somebody when you pray for them. And Paul regularly prays for this church. And I think there's a pattern for us here. Number one, what I just said, Paul prays for this church consistently. Paul prays for this church regularly. He is intentional with this prayer. He is consistent with this prayer. He is purposeful with this prayer. It's a little bit different than the way we pray in the American church today. So generally what happens is somebody will come to you like after church or you're hanging out and they'll come to you with some issue or something they're struggling with and we'll say a phrase. It's, you know, I'll pray for you. We'll kind of pat them on the back and say, I'll pray for you. At some future time, I will pray for you. And then we walk away and we do one of two things. One is we either forget and then, you know, like a day later, you're like, oh, I should have prayed for them. And we kind of do like the retroactive prayer, like, God, I know you're outside of time and so I'm praying for this thing that already happened. And, or... We, we just forget. We forget to pray to that person. Paul was praying for people consistently, and his prayer life wasn't reactionary. He's not waiting for something bad to happen to this church before he starts praying for them. So he's praying for them. I could see Paul like stitching up a tent or you know, riding some donkey or beast of burden between missionary journeys, praying for this church that he loves. So he prays regularly, he prays gratefully. He is thankful in the way he prays. That's what the first section is all about. He's praising God for what he is doing in the lives of these people. Yes, their faith and love and hope that is rooted in the gospel. And and he's letting them know, I'm praying for you about these things. I'm thanking God for you on your behalf which is a very powerful thing to do when you pray with someone like this. Like, if you pray gratefully for someone and that person is in your presence, two things happen. One, that person is encouraged because they may need to hear how God is working in their life. Because I'm going to be honest, there are times in my life, even as a pastor, where I'm like, is God really doing anything right now? Is God really working through me right now? And so when someone comes to me and prays that prayer, it's encouraging to me. But more importantly, we're acknowledging the giver of all good things. We're praising God for who he is and what he has done. It's a twofer. It's a value meal prayer. And so it affects the person and it praises God. Finally, we see Paul praying for spiritual development. Now, we often focus our prayers on the physical realm. We pray because someone is sick or they really want that promotion or they're trying to decide to buy a home or not. Now, every single one of those things 
are good prayers to pray. You know, I don't want you to suffer. I want you to suffer with sickness. I want you, you to use your resources wisely, man. If, 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 if a promotion is going to help you with certain things, man, I'll pray for you to get a promotion. But, but most importantly, my primary concern for you, our primary concern for one another, should be whether or not we're, we're walking in a manner that is pleasing to God. We need to pray for one another's spiritual development. And that's something that kind of gets put on the back burner a little bit. But we see Paul here praising them for, for, for yes, what he has done, but we also see him asking for God to, to fill them with knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that they may bear fruit and be strengthened and give thanks and live this life that is worthy of the Lord. I want to pray the same type of prayers for you. So here's my encouragement. This is the, the application of the day is I want you to find one person, one other person this week. You know, I want you to call them up, write them a letter, uh, and thank God for what he is doing in their life and ask God to continue working in their life to help them spiritually persevere. So do what Paul did with this church. Now, I, I, I'm going to challenge you. Not somebody in your family, not your mom or dad or your spouse. Find somebody else in this church to pray for. And again, go to them, call them up, connect with them, and, and pray for them, thanking God for what he is doing in their life and asking God to mature them, to grow them, to persevere, to press on. And, and then go away, and then throughout the week, I want you to re remind yourself to pray for that person. Now, you may say, Pastor Larry, I don't like praying out loud with other people. You know, I, I just really don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. In the words of Mother Teresa, get over it. Mother Teresa didn't say that. I said that. But, and I don't say that in a mean way, but, but I say it in an honest way. Like, challenge yourself. What, what, is, what is the root of that? It, it's, it's, it's insecurity and pride. I don't want to look stupid. I don't know how to pray. I don't, if God can speak, speak creation into being, and not get tired. If God can part the seas and raise dead people, he can help you pray a prayer. And so find somebody this week to pray for. And, and I'm going to say this in a little bit, but guys, there's a lot of new faces in here. You may not know anybody. You may not know other people. That's where I'm going to encourage you to find somebody, get to know them, connect with them, and, and pray for them. Let's reflect the love of the gospel. Let's love one another with a love that is truly a byproduct of the gospel, a love that was lavished on us. Let us love in a way that moves us to pray for one another for our good and God's glory. Amen? Let's pray.